Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's October, and we are bringing back some of the messages you've sent in over the past week or so. Uh, Rob, do you want to kick it off with this message about the holy undead? All right, this one comes to us from Dorian. Hey, guys, first of all, uh, completely love your show. However, I couldn't believe that you failed to mention the new Netflix series in your last podcast, um, Midnight Mass. So uh, Dorian is referring to the fact that we discussed the, the old story, The Midnight Mass of the Dead, and here the, this is something called Midnight Mass. Um, I believe it's from, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy did Oculus. Mike Flanagan? I think it's Mike, Mike Flanagan, Flanagan. Yeah. yeah. You're an Oculus uh, fan, aren't you? I well, in as, as much as one can be of a film that, that I think that makes that wants to make you feel bad. Uh, it worked as a. It, I, I, th- I thought it was a, an effective horror film. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but I haven't. I haven't really watched a lot of um, his his recent stuff. So uh, I think Oculus is the most recent Mike Flanagan thing I've seen. He did the movie adaptation of Doctor Sleep, um, which oh, I yeah. watched not too long ago, and I had very mixed feelings about. So there's some really good things about it. Some things really don't work at all. No, well, I, I could probably say the same thing about the book. Like I, the, I read yeah. the book Doctor Sleep, and there were things I, I, I really liked about it, and things that I don't know didn't completely work for me. But uh, it's it's a good story. Uh, anyway, uh, Dorian continues. I had no idea that this was an older idea, and that the show borrowed this. But the take in the show is certainly really interesting. Um, TLDR, Jesus was a vampire. I uh, <laughs> hope you can mention this in your next installment, Best Dorian. Um, I think I have, I have to admit, I think I'd seen that title pop up in Netflix, but um, I hadn't really investigated further for a, a few different reasons. First of all, it's uh, I generally watch that kind of thing with my wife, and it's 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 hard to get her on board with with a horror show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I was able to successfully get her to watch The Terror with me, um, uh, season one of which is an adaptation of Dan Simon's novel, and uh, thus far it's just terrific. So uh, I, I knew better than to press my luck and start looking at another horror series and seeing if uh, I could get her on board with that one. Is that the one that's got uh, Lane Price from Mad Men in the in the Arctic? Uh, yeah, it's yeah, Jared ha- Harris uh, is in it. Uh, you got uh, Tobias Menzies. Uh, yeah, it's got a wonderful cast, and um, yeah, it's it's about uh, Arctic exploration and uh, and really, you could you if you didn't know that the show had a speculative element thrown in, uh, you, you'd be watching for a while before it presented itself, and then you're reminded, oh yeah, there's there's something else going on here as well. But uh, so far, greatly enjoying that show. I guess I'm suspicious. I was suspicious of the title, though, because Midnight Mass, it sounds dark, but you had that movie come out called Black Mass that was just about gangsters. It had nothing to do with, uh, you know, satanic masses and so forth and witchcraft. Um, and that, 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 that kind of turned me off. I'm like, ah, oh, I, I can't trust Hollywood to do anything. Oh, yeah. That's the one with, with Johnny Depp as the, the gangster with really blue eyes. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And he's not a warlock at all in it. Uh, well, like, why are you wasting my time? No, he's just kind of a grimy killer. Well, anyway, Dorian, thanks for bringing that to our attention. Yeah, uh, uh, I I had not put one and two together that uh, that might be related to what we were discussing in the show. But now that I know that there's at least some element of uh, the Midnight Mass of the Dead there, I'm I'm interested to check it out.
Okay, we got a few more responses to the episode that Seth and I did about horror movie music. Uh, this first one comes from Sebastian, who's written in a number of times. Uh, Sebastian says, Hello to the lads from Stuff. I'm not sure if anyone wrote in to comment on this, but in the very special episode featuring Seth, in which you discuss spooky horror soundtrack music, you briefly mentioned the Devil's Chord, also known as a tritone, and briefly mentioned its contentious history with the church. Now, Sebastian, respectfully, uh, though we did make reference to the tritone, I really don't think we said anything about the tritone having any particular history with the church. And I even checked my notes to make sure I didn't see anything about that. So, it's possible you may be mixing our episode up with something else, but uh, I appreciate all of the thoughts you have that follow nonetheless, because I have at least gotten the impression somewhere along the way that somebody at some point in time thought that this, uh, this series of notes was evil. Uh, but, uh, but Sebastian uh, explains... Unfortunately, this history is actually both made up and also modern, and was thoroughly debunked by dreamy YouTuber and funk bassist Adam Neely. And then he uh, links to to this YouTube channel. Uh, Turns out the chord was never banned by anyone and never considered an evil or dark sound. And sniping from Adam Neely's hard word, I link to the medieval French composer Perrotin's Catholic Christmas hymn, uh, Viderun Omnes, which is both loaded with tritones and also was commissioned by the church and is also beautiful. And Sebastian includes a link for us to listen to. Uh, but if people aren't as familiar with classical music, uh, you you can also uh, pretty quickly bring the tritone to mind if you think about the song off of Black Sabbath's first album. I think the song is called Black Sabbath. It's the one that goes down, down, down. <laughs> I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. And Ozzy's going, oh, no, please, God, help me. Um, uh, But uh, Sebastian goes on. Historically, the tritone was noted as being, quote, vivacious and forceful in ascent, funereal and sad in descent. In fact, Neely also found a modern instance of melodic sequences of the tritone chord being the opening three notes of The Simpsons theme and the name Maria in the self-named song from A West Side Story, both being very forceful and vivacious indeed. The chord was also known as the Devil's Chord, but for a different reason. In this arrangement, the four and five of a major scale are played along with the root, and if you know your music theory, then you know that they're a half-tone apart. As a result, singers will tend to try to sing a slightly flat fourth and a slightly sharp fifth to overcompensate for the similarity. The chord doesn't summon or invoke the devil, it's just devilishly difficult to get a choir to perform it. The assumption that historical people didn't have a sense of humor or metaphor came in in the 1960s, when heavy metal musicians were looking for things to incorporate to make things seem more forbidden. And a chord called The Devil definitely struck a chord. And then we get a winking face emoji. The rest is modern mythology. This reminds me of uh, an episode of Look Around You uh, about music. I guess it was the one about music, or it was the one that dealt with synthesizers. I can't remember if it was season one or two, but it's probably season one. Uh, where they they were talking about these uh, these notes diabolique, I think they were called, and uh, mm-hmm. it's this uh, this added little box at the end of the keyboard uh, that's actually locked, uh, and you have to <laughs> unlock it to access these uh, like these three. Maybe it was three, but it was just a, just a very small number of of keys that you could play. Look around you. That show, by the way, if you've never seen it, is is worth looking up. It's a oh, delight. absolutely yeah. 
even just a summary of the premise is pretty delightful. It is simply uh, short educational films of the kind you might see in a British elementary school classroom, except they are full of deeply incorrect information. Yeah, and just uh, yeah, just weirdness and absurdities. It's a, it's a fantastic vibe. All presented, for the most part, very dryly. Sebastian goes on. As for music, if you really want something to appear darker or spookier, more so than a minor key, you should really consider using different modes, especially the Locrian, where basically no two notes sound good together. But that's probably more music theory than your average Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener is ready for without a full episode of preamble. I mean, talking about music theory without uh, without auditory examples in general, I, I find is very difficult and uh, more so difficult because I don't understand a whole lot of music theory. I'm, I'm only uh, literate in the most basic music theory sense. Like, I think the extent to which I understand music is the extent to which you could say you're literate if you can only sort of read like road signs and stuff. Mm. Sebastian says, in the last listener mail, you also mentioned dark Christmas music, and my favorite will always be Coventry Carol, which is about the Christmas prophecy ending with King Herod's slaying of the babes. It is a Christmas carol in a dark key about witchcraft and genocide, all framed on the background of a census which was used as a tool of oppression. How metal is that? Yeah, I'm looking at the lyrics here. Uh, Herod the king and his raging charged uh, he hath this day, his men of might in his own sight, all children young to slay. And not, not, the, not the good Christmas kind of slay, not a sleigh ride, but the, the, the killing kind. Uh, this, that's music to eat candy canes by. <laughs> um, Sebastian goes on, one thing for Weird House Cinema uh, this has never come up on the show or basically anywhere, but I noticed recently that Tom Waits and Ron Perlman vaguely resemble each other, and it's a pity that they never played brothers or cousins in anything. Uh, Sebastian, I have noticed this before. I, you're not the only one. Uh, but Sebastian goes on. Both of their filmographies are almost entirely good fodder for Weird House Cinema, so it didn't seem too off-topic. I suppose I could say Tom Waits would make a hilarious dark bombadil with a swap-out for Perlman playing a magically powered-up warrior version of the character, assuming bombadil were like a wood spirit version of Sailor Moon, but that would be more of a Yodorowsky vision of the tale. Hmm. Well, there's a lot to lot to process there. I, I don't really have an answer. Um, except, uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to imagine Tom Waits or or Perlman in the role. I just I, I can't say. I like both of these guys a lot uh, in the roles that they are right for. But yeah, I mean Perlman is is Bombadil. It'd be a very kind of grumpy, growly yeah. Bombadil. Perlman is. I think Perlman's just way off. Tom Waits. I don't know that that could work with the right kind of irony. Hey, doll, Mary doll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good. Finally, Sebastian says, I'm hoping you're planning on Dune-themed episodes at some point to go along with the new adaptation. I guess it means the new movie. Uh, I don't know what else it would mean. Obviously, it means the new movie. Um, when I was a kid in the 90s, whenever I was asked if I were a Star Trek or Star Wars fan, and back then it was still aggressively guarded as a false dichotomy, my answer was always Dune. Good answer, Sebastian. 
Uh, the, the email continues. Unfortunately, I don't think a movie adaptation will ever do the material justice and will always land in favor of an animated miniseries. Something like the moody atmosphere of Samurai Jack's gorgeous matte backgrounds as he wandered the earth somehow blended with the frenetic surrealist modernism of the old Eon Flux cartoon. Science fiction and fantasy are usually only as good as their worst special effect. And honestly, I trust animators more than CG artists. Anyway, keep up the good work, Sebastian. Well, uh, I mean, obviously I'm excited to see the new Dune film. I guess by the time this publishes, it will be, uh, it'll, it'll be out in the States. Uh, so you're, you're listening to, to the me of the past that has not actually seen it yet. Uh, but I'm excited for it. And I, I, I have, I have high hopes that it will deliver as for upcoming episodes of the show about Dune related topics. I think we're going to try and get into this a little bit in November. Um, so, so stick with us. Uh, hopefully everyone will still be enthusiastic about Dune um, during the month of November and we'll, we'll, we'll explore something. We, we have several ideas. I am also extremely excited to see the movie. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you could both be very excited to see the movie and think that it could be great while also believing that it will be sort of hard for any movie ever to really fully capture the feeling of the novel. But I guess you could pro- people could probably feel that way about any novel. I mean, that may be true, especially of something like Dune. But I don't know. I'm I, I'm very excited for the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Obviously, a book like this it means a lot, lot to a lot of people, and it's had a lot of time to to find a, a sort of finalized form in your mind. Uh, so yeah, you have to go into it with, with, without, you know, too lofty of expectations. You know, you're not going to get your perfect mental vision of Dune. It's, it's someone else's and, uh, more than one person's, uh, a vision of what this world would be like. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm open to it. I'm looking forward to it. All right. This next one comes to us from Nick. Nick writes, in a recent episode, you said you couldn't think of a single example of major key music being used non-ironically in a horror film. I think I have an example for you, the 1973 film The Wicker Man. Its famous soundtrack includes British folk songs, nursery rhymes, and original compositions by Paul Giovanni, including the sublime Willows theme. The music is primarily in major key and upbeat, although it is often haunting and eerie in a way you can't put your finger on. No doubt there is an ironic significance to the music, but I don't think it's the obvious bait-and-switch sort of irony you were talking about. The cheerfulness of the music is genuine, just as the cheerfulness of the inhabitants of Summer Isle is genuine, notwithstanding their sinister intentions toward the hero. Really, the music of The Wicker Man is the key ingredient in its unique weirdness and creepiness. It's certainly unlike most horror music, just as the film itself is an atypical horror movie. Best regards. Oh my God, Nick, how did I not think of this? The Wicker Man is one of uh, my favorite horror movies. It's definitely a favorite in, in our house. I know it's one of my wife's favorite as well. We we tend to watch it, uh, not in October, actually, because it's it's seasonally appropriate for May 1st. We, we often watch it, we watch it most years on May 1st. And yeah, the music absolutely makes the film. Uh, the Corn Rigs and Barley Rigs song. Every time we watch the movie for weeks afterward, we're walking around the house, Corn Rigs and Barley rigs yeah it, it, it's it's unstoppable <laughs> i haven't seen it in a good while uh, I, sh- I should fire it up again i mean as for whether or not there is an irony intended in the music i mean i certainly feel a sense of irony in the music 
I think a lot of the pleasure of the movie lies in the cheerfulness of the pagans in it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the way Christopher Lee just uh, kind of confidently booms out joyful pronouncements in front of the crowds of, of masked islanders. It's uh, that that's where a lot of the fun lies, and I think the same that same spirit is there in the jolly music. Like I feel like the uh, the sense of irony it takes to appreciate the music in that movie is exactly what the uh, the supposed protagonist of the movie lacks. Uh, when when you know Christopher Lee says to him, "Does the sight of the young people refresh you?" and he, you know, and he's he's just a grump. He says, "No, it does not refresh me." All right, this next message comes from Lee. Lee says, Hello, my friend, a film composer, and I, a sound designer, just finished listening to your episode on scary music and loved it. We had a couple of thoughts about the episode we wanted to share. One, in regards to the minor key being dissonant, I theorize that the minor third doesn't occur in the overtone series until very late. He wanted to point out that children's music and modern pop uh, tend to have minor thirds because they're easier to sing. Uh, I'll have to take your word for it on that because I, again, don't don't fully understand what that's referring to there. But then this next point I thought is a great one. Uh, Lee goes on, We were surprised you didn't mention the Dies Irae, a four-note sequence, an octave displacement, a broad distance between high pitches and low rumbles, common in spooky films. These might be fun research tangents. Uh, yes, we can definitely come back to this, especially I, I've been thinking about the Dies Irae. So this is a four-note sequence that you will recognize from probably initially your brain will lock onto it in one movie score, but then you'll notice it all over the place, usually in dire, dark kind of scenes, especially in horror movies. It comes from uh, medieval uh, monks chants, I think from, from funeral chants, but it's used in all kinds of film scores. Uh, one place it's very iconic is it's the first four notes in the classic main theme to The Shining by Wendy Carlos. You, you hear versions of that in a lot of different uh, uh, bits of film composition. So I, I agree that could absolutely be something that's really fun to explore in more uh, detail in the future because it has a lot of different – it pops up all over the place and has interesting uh, historical and religious themes associated with it. Now, you, I think you mentioned off mic earlier that we also see this in the Simpsons theme song or some version no, of this. Oh, no. That's the tritone. That's the tritone. Okay. I was wondering about it because uh, um, – uh, in in a second, the this particular listener mentions another film that I'm pretty sure has uh, Danny Elfman music, and I was wondering if there's something about Danny Elfman's music that is that tends to be in, inherently uh, creepy. I, I was just thinking about this because we just watched Beetlejuice for the first time with uh, with my son, hmm. and uh, great music first of, in that. Well, yeah, well, for you. So the music is, is, is great, but also my son did not like the music. He, in fact, he, he requested that the movie be, be turned uh, down somewhat and subtitles be put on because the music was too much for him. Oh, no. Uh, uh, he, he also was not particularly fond of the film. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in Beetlejuice that doesn't really hold up, you know, and it has that, um, 
uh, Beetlejuice is, is, is wildly inappropriate, um, <laughs> uh, the character. Uh, yeah. he's, he's not a good ghost, and uh, he does not learn anything. Um, that being said, there, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff in, in the film. I, I, I did like the, uh, many of the sets and costumes and some of the ideas. Well, it was one of those confusing things where they made a kid's cartoon out of it, which makes you just sort of assume if you haven't seen the movie in a while that it's appropriate for children. And I Mm -hmm. I don't think it is like, yeah, Beetlejuice is Beetlejuice is like a nasty, weird, unpleasant character. Yeah, he's a creeper, Uh, you know, and he tries to take a child bride. It's um, it's it's a weird film. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, it it does have one of those uh, signature Danny Elfman scores that um, it you know moves along and seems to have a fair amount of energy, but also uh, you know feels kind of brooding and creepy. Well, I, I guess connecting to what you're saying, Lee also says uh, we also talked to another composer friend, and Edward Scissorhands is the closest we could come to a horror flick that has a main theme and a major key. I honestly don't remember at all what the music in Edward Scissorhands is like, uh, but uh, I, I mean it's definitely it's Dan- Danny Elfman. It yeah. is Danny Elfman, but uh, but yeah, nothing's coming to mind on that. I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean I don't remember. I mean, I might be able to, if you played it for me, I might be able to guess that it, that, that it is, in fact, a Danny Elfman score. They, there's a certain sound that's uh, undeniable. I guess I tend to think of a lot of kind of beeps and boops and stuff. Is that the, is that the music theory name? I don't know. We'll have to come back to that. <laughs> yeah, a Danny Elfman score tends to sound like a, um, like, like a weird black car riding across a, a strange landscape. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> a, or maybe it's just because I've just heard it's, I've I've so associated it with Tim Burton films that that's just kind of it. All right, before we move on to some uh, uh, Weird House Cinema stuff here, I have a quick uh, uh, bit of listener mail from Discord. Yes, uh, yes, we do. We do have a stuff to blow your mind. Discord. Um, it's always tricky to steer people towards it because I think you need a link for it. So hey, if you want the link for the Discord, just email us. You'll find the email address at the end of this episode. Anyway, Fletch uh, on Discord shares, Herne the Hunter, mentioned in today's episode on weather and ghosts, featured in an old BBC show, Robin of Sherwood, that leaned pretty heavily into pre-Christian British myth. It also had Sean Connery's son, Jason, as a second incarnation of Robin in later seasons, and a young Ray Winston as Will Scarlet. Uh, the music for the show was done by Clannad, the band uh, Inya was in uh, before her solo career, uh, and they included a YouTube compilation of various bits that uh, featured uh, Herne the Hunter. Uh, I had to look this show up. It looks looks pretty fun. I noticed that Richard O'Brien shows uh, up in it and plays a wizard for a number of episodes. Ooh. And uh, combine that with a, a cool score, and uh, I'm potentially interested. It looks like you can, you can access it via some streaming sites today. Well, I was trying to look up and see if I've seen Jason Connery in anything. Looks like he was in Wishmaster 3. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't see Wishmaster three. That's that's one where you don't even have the original Wishmaster in it, right? I think that's one where you get a, uh, yeah, you get a different a different uh, gen care actor in that. They've perverted the original spirit of Wishmaster. <laughs> the first, I, I, the first Wishmaster is worth watching for the first <laughs> ten minutes or so because it has this prologue that's uh, that's that sets out to be this kind of. 
um, Arabian Nights horror story where there's just like out of control uh, gin magic and people are transforming into beasts and skeletons are walking. And uh, it, it, it has a really fun flavor to it. And you, you're watching it and you're thinking, this, this is pretty great. I could, I could watch this movie. And then that ends and you're transported to just, you know, your typical modern day horror movie environment. And it, you know, it quickly gets a little bit repetitive and uninteresting. I need to Beastmaster 2 this thing and get us to modern day L.A. <laughs> Or is yeah, that not yeah, two? Once, I don't know which one it is. <laughs> uh, that was two for sure. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's 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 one of those movies. But I, I highly recommend the first ten minutes of Wishmaster. It's pretty fun. Lots of <laughs> and lots of practical effects are thrown in there. It's 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 really cool. Jason Connery, however, is not in it. Well, I'm gonna have to check out this Herne the Hunter link. Okay, this next message comes in response to the Ghosts of the Wind and Rain episode. This is from Anne. Anne says, Hey, Robert and Joe, I love the show. I've been listening for several years, and I've written in as well. I'm especially appreciative of the six episodes a week format, so thank you. I have a huge affinity for the paranormal, multicultural folk tales, and mythological creatures. I balance these fanciful and supernatural topics with your podcast. So whenever the scientific and fantastical elements meet, I'm all ears. In reference to your Ghosts in the Wind and Rain episode, you question if there are skeptics within the paranormal field. My answer is yes. Many of the investigators and those who are interested in the topic refer to themselves as, quote, open-minded skeptics. They try to find non-paranormal explanations for paranormal events. Take that approach how you will. Personally, I've never had any supernatural experiences, as far as I know. Uh, and then on a different topic, the Monster Fact episodes are delightful. I have a possible topic for you. The Vardo... Uh, I'm not sure how to say this. The Vardoger or Vardiger... Uh, besides being a heavy metal Christian band from Norway, parentheses, <laughs> of course, uh, is a Norwegian term for a spirit predecessor. Uh, a Vardiger is likened to an auditory doppelganger that occurs before the arrival of the person that is being imitated. Uh, thank you for all your research that you put into your topics. The content is always engaging, and thank you for taking time to read my email, Anne. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one, but I'm, I'm always excited to find out about new folkloric uh, creatures and monsters. Regarding paranormal investigators who are skeptical of the, the reality of paranormal phenomena, I, I guess uh, it's true that, that such figures must exist. And, you know, there are skeptics of various sorts who dabble in this kind of thing all the time. I guess we were wondering about if this is somebody's main gig, if, the, <laughs> if they'd be likely to take a skeptical approach. Um, and, and one thing I know is that though, I think this is not who you are talking about. There are some people just a heads up who like I've looked into before who describe themselves as skeptics. But then when you start listening to the stuff they're saying, they're actually just full blown ghost realists. They're just like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there was a, a demon possession here and, you know, and so they're just fully on board, but I guess trying to get extra sort of, uh, cred by calling themselves skeptical. Hmm. Interesting. But I'm, I'm not saying that the, uh, the people you're talking about are like that. I, I'm just saying I, I know there are people like that. I mean, I, I think a part of it, again, comes down to the, the entertainment value of it. I think that's yeah. what we were talking about before. Like, it seems like there's going to be a, a, a tendency to lean into the idea of I want to believe. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, how interesting a ghost hunter is it if they have a poster on their wall that says, I don't really want to believe or <laughs> I don't believe and I don't particularly expect to find evidence supporting uh, <laughs> the existence of these things. 
Yeah. But I guess one of the one of the things uh, I, I should drive home. I've driven this home before. Is that I, I I guess if there's a balance of the two energies, you know, if there's sort of a what if this is real, but then you um, you base that in fact. I think that was one of the big failings of of the uh, the episodes of um, of uh, unsolved mysteries that I watched when I was a kid that would get into some sort of paranormal topics where. Either they didn't, or I certainly don't remember them getting into the skeptical counter arguments. Um, maybe they did, and it just did not have as much of an effect on my young brain as the uh, as the what if arguments. But uh, mm. I, I felt like I I didn't encounter a pop, uh, any kind of like proper skeptical reaction to these ideas until I was uh, a grown person. I remember, well, again, this is just going to be off kind of vague memories mostly, but I remember them sort of coming at both angles of some of these stories, but it felt like at least through the, uh, I don't know, music and editing choices and stuff, Mm -hmm. there was very much a finger on the scale for whatever the weirder interpretation was because, you know, that's more fun. Yeah, yeah. Or actually, it's not necessarily more fun. It's just uh, easier to make that side fun. It, it takes more work to find the fun in, in naturalistic explanations. <laughs> That's the moral of today's episode. There is fun in naturalistic explanations for weird stuff. It's just, uh, you, you just got to work to find it. Now, here's a question, I, and I'm, I have not watched an episode of Unsolved Mysteries in quite a long time. But, of course, most of the content on Unsolved Mysteries was about unsolved mysteries. They were about <laughs> crimes uh, perpetrated by humans and, uh-huh. the, and, the, and a quest for justice. You know, asking people, if you have any information about these crimes, you know, call in or write in. I forget how, you know, how they were reaching out to, to uh, viewers. But uh, in those cases... They, I don't remember them opening up the vault and saying, um, we don't know if people did this. It's possible they were aliens or big feet, as yeah. referenced in our other episodes. We can't rule out cryptids or aliens, folks. Uh, no, those episodes tended to, uh, uh, or those, uh, those um, sections of the, of the show, those, mm. uh, uh, those segments, uh, they tended to be pretty sure that humans were the, were the, the reason that bad things were happening. Right, so Robert Stack is narrating this event where, I don't know, some, some guy gets like a bag thrown over his head and he's thrown into the trunk of a car and nobody knows mm-hmm. where he disappeared to. And what if it was an elf that did that? Yeah. <laughs> could have been an elf, could have been a ghost. We don't, we don't know. This is actually a really good idea for a reverse show. We should keep this in the back pocket. Or all we do is explain very naturally explicable phenomena in terms of bizarre supernatural occurrences. Yeah, I, I kind of want to. Wish I could go back in time and, um, and and kind of prank call the number that they had. I could have been like, mm-hmm. uh, "Yeah, I have information regarding that uh, missing persons case you profiled in episode, uh, you know, three twenty two or whatever." I'd be like, uh, "Yeah, I, I think it's probably those uh, alien beings capable of faster than light travel because mm-hmm. they can pretty much do anything. So they probably were the ones responsible for that uh, that kidnapping." Are you familiar with Draugr? <laughs> Okay, we got one last message about Weird House Cinema. Uh, Rob, do you want to do this one? All right, Pat writes in, you guys are the best. Thank you for Halloween 3. Well, we, we, we can't take all the, the credit for a Halloween 3 season of The Witch, uh, we, uh, but I know, I know what Pat's saying. Uh, Pat continues, in the discussion, you mentioned the lack of explanation for Michael Myers. I remember reading a novelization of the movie that has a Sawin prologue, which explains that he is an ancient curse. Is this true? Is he is he a curse? I don't, that, they they get into that in later movies. I don't know how okay. early anybody came up with that idea, but by say 
Uh, the sixth movie, definitely. Maybe it's there in the fifth one, too. I'm not sure. It was somewhere in those horrible later sequels, they start saying, oh, yeah, he's some kind of dru- ancient druid magic thing. I don't know. Oh, okay. Why did they never do a Leprechaun crossover? That would have been perfect. Oh, that would have been good, yeah. Except I think the the Leprechaun sequels have so much more class than the later Halloween <laughs> sequels. Yeah. All right. Um uh, anyway, Pat continues, blood sacrifice to ancient Irish gods at the Autumn Festival is at the root. Season of the Witch provides answers to the questions about Michael Myers' behavior. The sequel, therefore, is an extension of the narrative. There is more than a hint that the ancient Irish gods find modern Halloween celebrations to be an insult. This is why the children must be punished. Thanks <laughs> ever so much for the wonderful entertainment, Pat. So it's blasphemy. Trick-or-treating is blasphemy. And Michael Myers has been sent by the ancient Irish gods uh, to punish us. He's like a modern day Cuchulain who's coming out to, <laughs> he's doing his warp spasm all the way through the Halloween season to just <laughs> em- embrace the modern secularized Halloween world with a knife. <laughs> yeah, low energy warp spasm. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is maybe a question we're going to have to solve in some future Weird House Cinema episode. We're going to have to like fully track down and systematize the 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 mythology of the Halloween series and figure out what order people came up with what ideas and how it all fits together. I think it'll be brutal. What's the what's the prevailing uh, wisdom nowadays? Is he just like a revenant or or, I guess, or maybe I guess Jason's more of a revenant. What's Jason what's is Michael more Myers? of a revenant. I I don't know what Michael Myers is honestly. I mean and I think that's the best way. I mean that that's the spirit of the original movie is like He's completely inexplicable. He doesn't make any sense. It's just like uh, it, it's a terror from out of nowhere and for no reason. And that's what makes the first movie so good. Yeah, yeah. I think the impulse to over-explain is something that must constantly be uh, resisted by, by sequel filmmakers. I mean, how often when we when we find out the true backstory behind whatever thing it was in the original movie of some series, is that really satisfying? It, it's pretty rare. Yeah, I can't. I'm off offhand. I'm having trouble thinking of an example of it ever, ever really working. Or even if it does work, um, you know, you're creating something. You end up creating something new, and you end up ticking people off. Uh, for example, Highlander Two. You know, a film that, that we both uh, uh, find a lot of enjoyment in. I mean, part of I, I think ultimately they came up with a pretty good. Uh, sequel idea there. I think that was a pretty good direction to go in, but it's a direction that inevitably was going to tick off fans of the original because it was such a diversion from what they they knew. And that uh, the first Highlander film does have a lot of mystery. Why are there immortals? Eh, nobody knows. They just they just are, and they do this thing. Isn't it so much more fun to wonder about that question than to have it answered? Yeah. And then again, I guess, you know, especially today, you end up with if something is popular, then fans are going to form their own theories. And then if those theories don't turn out to be true or partially true, then that can also add to, to some of their discomfort with, um, with with a piece of media. So, uh, yeah, yeah uh, the mystery is, is often the best. I mean, these are these are often creatures and things that come out of the unknown. And that's that's part of the fabric of what makes them interesting. But I think we've already spoken, and now it's canon. He's Kukulin, and that can't be taken back. Uh, the only way to defeat him is with the stingray. That would be neat. To, to the butt, right? Right. Well, I guess he would kill with a stingray to the butt. That's the, yeah. That would be the way it would work. Um, okay. Yeah. Has he ever killed with a stingray? I don't think any of the, 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 the major so. slashers have killed with stingrays. 
there is a really profoundly troubling lack of stingray presence in in modern horror films. I mean, you could do it too, because all you have to do is have your slasher go to a local aquarium uh, where there are touch tanks. (laughs) I mean, there's also potentially, at least in the movie, you can have a shark tank there and there's a shark versus Michael Myers or versus Jason. I mean, that, that sounds fun. I would probably watch that. Oh my God. It's the perfect, perfect franchise crossover. Halloween meets Deep Blue Sea. Michael Myers versus Super Smart Sharks. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can get behind the idea. Yeah, especially, like, what if they end up, ha- they have the brain of Jason. That's the thing. <laughs> Is that a smart brain? <laughs> Is that a- <laughs> it's, well, I don't know if it's smart. It's 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 very focused. Uh, once, it, right. once it gets going, it's hard to, it doesn't let an idea go. Disciplined. He's got stick-to-itiveness. Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> it, Jason has all those job interview qualities. Yeah, he does. Okay, I think we got to call it there. All right. Uh, we're going to go, yeah, we'll go ahead and close the book on this one, but we'll be back next week with more listener mail on Monday, followed by new uh, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, new artifact or monster episodes on uh, Wednesday. And then on Friday, that's Weird House Cinema. That's our time to discuss a strange film. Uh, yeah, that's that's it. What, what do you have to add there, Joe? Got an email Absolutely address for nothing. us? Oh, oh, wait. Yeah, okay. We could do that. Um, so if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email. Have your own thoughts featured on a future listener mail episodes. Uh, no promises. We get a lot of email. But, well, you know, you know, you write us something good. We'll do our best to include it. Um, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Oh, and thanks to Seth, as always. We're all out of order at the end here. Thanks to our producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. Again, that email address is contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.